We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 100 of the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Got a packed show for you guys today, starting in Hoover, Alabama. South Carolina baseball season ends against LSU. Gamecocks dropping that one 8-6. to six. We'll talk about the games, reflect on South Carolina's 2019 season, answer the simple question, what must South Carolina do to get back to Omaha? Also, it is summer college football magazine preview season. We're going to talk about what Athlon thinks of the Gamecocks, overall record, position breakdowns, all SEC teams, and much more. Also, a fantastic interview with former Gamecocks quarterback Anthony Wright as we break down his South Carolina career in its entirety and much, much more. Uh, before we dive into all that, this is a podcast presented to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket buying app by far. You guys hear me talk about them all the time. They're the only place I would recommend anyone go get their tickets, and then the only place that I buy my tickets as well. They make it very, very simple, very easy. They've actually got a ticket rating system, which rates the tickets for you based on the type of deal you're getting. So whether you're paying a little bit too much, whether you're getting a steal, SeatGeek lets you know before you click that buy button. So be sure to go download SeatGeek. Use the promo code SPURSUP. That's S-P-R-S-U-P. You're actually going to save $10 off your first purchase. Again, SeatGeek, they've literally got tickets to everything, whether it be NFL, NBA, NHL, college football. It can be concerts, comedy club events. It does not have to be sports, but definitely if you're going to any South Carolina Gamecock sporting events, be sure to use our friends over at SeatGeek again. So to go download the SeatGeek app, use the promo code SPURSUP and save $10 off your first purchase. All right, let's get into it. I'm Chris Phillips, your host of the Spurs Up Show. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in, and welcome to episode 100. It's crazy, 100 episodes deep. want to thank our listeners, thank our fans so, so much for supporting us, making this possible. Obviously, started this thing back in, I guess it was April of 2017, when the Spurs Up Show was actually born, back when we were Armchair South Carolina and the Spurs Up Show. So, to hit 100 episodes, it's pretty cool, obviously, um, and cheers to the next 100 for sure. Nothing Nothing too, too special planned, but again, every every episode of the Spurs Up show is a special episode. Got a fantastic interview as well with Anthony Wright and a lot of good stuff to talk about. Also, we are 100 days from kickoff, folks. Sound the alarm. We are 100 days from kickoff, and it's only right that we are talking South Carolina football in this episode as well um, as I break down the Athlon Sports Magazine, Athlon, the Athlon College Football Preview Magazine that has South Carolina's full preview. Just going to give some of my thoughts, some tidbits from that magazine. 
um, as we're kind of in that season now where you go to Publix, you grab your favorite magazine, whether it's Lindy's Athlon, mine is Phil Steele. I'll be honest with you. I love the Phil Steele magazine. That one normally doesn't come out more so to mid-June or July, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's getting that time of year, 100, 100 days to kick off. Obviously, we're going to be doing our 100 days to kick off countdown on social media, similar to how we did last year if you guys didn't follow us then. But obviously a very, very exciting time as everyone counts down to kick off. And I know everyone is ready for college football season, especially since college baseball season is now over officially in Columbia, South Carolina. Let's start with that. Gamecocks losing in the SEC tournament. Their season officially ends. Gamecocks finish the year 28-28, and 8-23 and 23 in the SEC as they fall to LSU 8-6. to six. Um, Obviously a very back-and-forth game, a game that I really thought South Carolina had a great chance to win. If you guys watch the Daily Crow, you know that I had, you know, I had a lot of optimism going into this game, and I thought for good reason. I thought South Carolina did sort of what I thought they would do, what I expect them to do. They were able to jump out early on Cole Henry, you know, string some hits together. I know it was a crazy second inning. Um, but overall, the Gamecocks, you know, were able to string some things together, string some hits together, manufacture some runs, which I thought was – very awesome to see. Obviously, again, we've seen this team, you know, hit home runs and, you know, and do that dance. But we haven't really seen this team be able to man manufacture runs. Gamecocks put up a five spot in the second. You know, I thought, obviously, the lack of pitching depth was one of the biggest things for South Carolina in this game. Um, you know, Gamecocks, again, put up that five spot, go five to one, and then LSU comes right back and puts two on the board. Um, if you're going to win big games, you simply cannot have that happen. You've got to have the shutdown inning. Overall, that's been the story of the season for South Carolina baseball is just the lack of pitching depth, if you will. Um, you take a look at the lineup. Again, I thought Andrew Eister had a solid night. Luke Berryhill a solid night with two RBI. Had a big two-out hit. Uh, Chris Cullen, your senior, with two RBI as well. Um, TJ Hopkins had a review, but that was really all of it. Again, South Carolina losing 8-6 to six. overall. You know, you take a look at this game. And just this season in general, where does Carolina baseball really go from here? Um, because obviously this is, you know, one of the worst seasons in South Carolina baseball history, one of the worst seasons in 20-plus years. I don't think I need to harp on it. I think there's a lot of questions that South Carolina and Mark Kingston are going to have to answer between now and first pitch <clears> – <throat> excuse me, now and first pitch of the 2020 baseball season. Um, my, my first question simply is, will the real Noah Campbell please stand up? Or where, where will the production – will Noah Campbell be able to return to the guy that we all thought he was going to be? Um, a dude that was preseason All-American, preseason All-SEC, and a lot of different publications, and somebody that really just fell short of all expectations. You know, I've got his stats right here, pulling them up. But a guy that fell extremely short. And I think if you asked him, Mark Kingston, obviously the fan base, but everyone who was expecting so much out of Noah Campbell – just kind of wondering what happened. I don't know if it was expectations from within because, again, we forget these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that we're talking about. And, you know, the expectations can get to them. I really think the expectations, you know, can get to them. I'm trying to pull up his stats here, and for whatever reason, it's not pulling up. But, but again, I think he was just right around the 200 hitter. I mean, I mean it's, it wasn't a good year for Noah Campbell. So can they get him back on track? Because next season for Noah Campbell – not only big, and here they are here, he hit two, actually hit 239. He actually did okay the last couple of weeks of the season, really raised his average. Hit 239 overall in the season, six homers, 19 RBIs, um, only eight of 14 stolen bases, and only a 324 on-base percentage for a guy that's your leadoff hitter. That's just not good enough. Um, so next season's obviously going to be very big for him, not just for South Carolina, though. I mean, obviously for South Carolina and getting him going and Having him at the top of their lineup is going to be huge. But him, for him personally, if he wants to play pro ball, which he obviously does, you know, your junior year is very, very big as far as your draft eligibility. And it's very big as far as that's the year you really need to ball out and stand out for the pro scouts. So 
will Noah Campbell be able to have a bounce back year and sort of become that guy? Because again, we've seen flashes, you know, his freshman year, you can attribute to he was a freshman, you know, he only hit like 220 or something. But you can say, hey, he's a true freshman in the SEC, sort of like we saw from uh, from uh, from Brady Allen. I mean, he's a freshman, right? You get that excuse that first year. But very, very troubling the way he swung the bat this year, no doubt. Even in the field, I didn't think it was fantastic. So, you know, will he be able to come back and return to, well, I guess get to, not even return to, get to the form that we think Noah Campbell should be? Because, again, I, I don't think he was ever that guy this year. And the Gamecocks certainly need him to be that, to be successful in 2020 and beyond. Um, another question for me that I think they're going to have to answer, Mark Kingston, who replaces T.J. Hopkins and Jacob Olson's production? I guess you could throw in Chris Cullen in there if you want as well. But obviously those are your two big boppers, your seniors, T.J. Hopkins, who hit 285 on the year, 11 homers, 42 RBIs. Then Jacob Olson, um, who hit 254, but hit 13 homers and 37 RBIs, 13 homers leading the Gamecocks in that department. Where do you get that production from? And I've already talked before. I think Andrew Eister is your best returning hitter. He's the only hitter that hit over 300 on the season, hit 309 had 10 homers, 32 ribbies, and then Luke Berryhill, I think. Those are your top two hitters returning, and Andrew Eister and Luke Berryhill. But where is South Carolina able to fill that production? I mean, every year you lose guys, and every year you need guys to step up. But the Gamecocks are going to have to fill those holes quickly because, you know, you want to believe that this pitching staff is obviously going to get healthy. They're going to bounce back. They're going to bring new guys in, and they're not going to be nearly as bad as they were this year. But – I still want – if you're South Carolina, you still need to be ready to score a lot of runs in 2020. That's what I'll say. So, how are you going to replace those guys, obviously, and not just from their production standpoint as far as their numbers, but their senior leadership? Who steps up and fills in the void of a T.J. Hopkins, of a Jacob Olsen? Guys that, again, while this season didn't go well, you think back to the Clemson series. I mean, T.J. Hopkins was literally national hitter of the week, as was Jacob Olsen a few weeks later. Um, so, these are guys that were huge for your season. I mean, the little that you did win this year – those guys had major, major, major parts in it. So how do you replace those two veteran senior guys that are now uh, leaving your program? Um, obviously, biggest questions. I mean, this really isn't a question, but some an area that needs to get addressed, obviously, just getting healthy overall, especially in the pitching staff. I mean, getting guys like Graham Lawson, Ridge Chapman, Carmen Majinski, getting these guys back. I mean, getting them back and getting them healthy. Obviously, again, I, I think you need you have to answer – the pitching situation do you get an influx of new pitching talent is it going to be a ton of young guys again next year that you feel like can be the dudes are there guys that develop like a Danny Lloyd like a Dylan Harley um you know how does the the pitching staff develop because obviously again I I'm hard on the pitching staff and the pitchers just because I did pitch in college myself and you know I'm probably even a little bit too hard on them and not hard enough on the hitting but last night is a perfect example. South Carolina hit well enough to win that baseball game. There's no doubt. They hit well enough to win that baseball game. But when you just simply don't have anybody who can come out of your bullpen and get a stop, get get a couple of outs for you, put a, you know, put a patch over the leak, if you will, stop the damage, stop the bleeding. When you don't have those kind of guys, it's going to be very, very tough on your team and, and on, on your team in general. So the Gamecocks, I mean, obviously a huge question for them to answer going to 2020 is just getting the pitching staff, getting that ship right. I think there are pieces to build around. Obviously, you look directly at Reed Morgan and Brett Carey. I think those two guys um, are certainly pieces you're going to want to build around in 2020. Also, Cam Tringali, who I thought, you know, did not have his best stuff last night. I don't know if maybe the moment was a little bit too big for him as well, but I think overall is a guy that could be very, very solid for South Carolina. I could see him sort of being in a Sunday role. I mean, John Gilry, TJ Shook, guys that are going to need to step up, no doubt, guys, because they're going to be the veteran guys. I mean, these are going to be guys that are juniors 
Um, guys that absolutely need to step up for South Carolina. So just, just finding that combination of pitching and just being healthy as far as the pitchers are concerned. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a lot of questions from Mark Kingston, Skyler Mee, this, this coaching staff. It's obviously going to be a very, very long offseason for South Carolina baseball after this type of season. I mean, literally the worst season we've seen in 20-plus years before the Ray Tanner era even began at South Carolina. So, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I thought the Gamecocks really had that game last night. Again, you're up 5-1 to one in the second. You're feeling really good about the way you're swinging the bats. You knock out Cole Henry before he even gets through two innings, and South Carolina just unable to hang on. I think, again, last night's game sort of being – a true microcosm of their season and just how, how it had gone for the Gamecocks this year. Um, all right, so let's move into Athlon College Football Magazine's preview, South Carolina preview. As I talked to you guys in the intro, this is obviously the time of year where the preseason magazine, they're dropping now. There's going to be a lot of different publications that drop them. I was in the store the other day, though, thought it'd be a great idea. Hey, not going to obviously read everything verbatim and spoil everything, but I want to just kind of give my thoughts on what Athlon is saying about the Gamecocks, let you guys know what Athlon's saying about the Gamecocks, and uh, just kind of give my thoughts on it. So, as to no one's surprise, the schedule is obviously a very big topic for those guys. They've got South Carolina finishing fourth in the SEC East, six and six overall, and three and five in the SEC. They don't give which games those wins are against. So, I'm, I'm imagining they are saying South Carolina is obviously going to beat North Carolina, App State, and Charleston Southern in the non conference, and then beat in the conference. I'm assuming Vanderbilt, Kentucky, and I'm going to say Tennessee or Missouri, maybe Missouri probably, Um, either Tennessee or Missouri, flip a coin there. But overall, they don't give that information. Um, Let's get into kind of a breakdown of it because there's some very interesting stuff. There's some very interesting stuff that I pulled away from this magazine. Um, Position unit rankings was something that I was very intrigued by. Defense and the offensive line, I thought, different position units within the defense and then the Gamecocks offensive line. I thought we're very underrated. Um, Gamecocks offensive line by Athlon ranked ninth in the SEC. Um, I think the Gamecocks offensive line is a very solid unit returning. I think they've got some veteran guys there and a nice mix. You think of DJ or uh, excuse me, Dylan Wanham, Sedarius Hutcherson, Donnell Stanley, Hank Manos, um, you know, a, a pretty solid group coming back and through recruiting, you know, I think the Gamecocks have a, a pretty – you know, a, a pretty good tandem of guys. I mean, again, Donnell Stanley, Dylan Wanham, Hank Manos, Eric Douglas, Sidarius Hutcherson. You know, you throw in guys like Jovan Gwynn, Maxwell Yama, Jordan Rhodes, <clears throat> Chandler Farrell, who Will Muschamp was very impressed. So I think the offensive lines look better than ninth in the SEC. Um, I also thought on the defensive side of the ball, very underrated. Defensive line ranked seventh. Um, and again, there, there's a lot to prove for these units. So you can't blame these guys for ranking them where they are, but. Linebackers 11th, uh, not sure that they're underrated, but just very – you hate to see that, 11th. And this, this was the one that really stuck out to me, defensive backs 8th. I mean, I, I think the Gamecocks, as far as D-line and defensive back, have one of the be- – one of the a good chance to have one of the better units in the SEC in both those departments. Athlon I was going to get to in a second, but literally they praise and speak highly on how good of a tandem J.C. Horner and Israel McQuamu are and talk about how good the South Carolina defensive backs can be and also praise the Gamecocks defensive line. So. I was sort of surprised to see the Gamecocks D-line and DBs hanging around the, the middle of the conference. Um, but overall, again, there are a lot of good units in the SEC, but I just think those are very, very much underrated as well as the offensive line. Um, another thing that really stood out to me, they talk obviously the all-SEC teams. They have a first team, second team, third team, and fourth team. Jake Bentley misses out on all four of the teams. 
you know, that to me, I think they had, I'm not looking at it now. They had Jake Fromm, Felipe Franks was the fourth team. That's the one that really stuck out at me and blew my mind. Um, Jake Fromm, um, let's see, Felipe Franks. I can look it up here as well. Just a crazy list. What it means so more to me, though, is like, what does it mean for Jake Bentley to be that, you know, a veteran quarterback, I mean, a senior quarterback in the SEC, and to not even make the first four teams of the All-SEC teams? I, I mean, what does that mean for a guy like that? I mean, it, it has to be somewhat of a slap in the face, I'd imagine, right? It has. Here we go. So we got Tua Tungvaluwa first team, Jake Fromm second team, Kellen Mond third team, and Felipe Franks on the fourth team. I mean, again, for a guy like Jake Bentley, who I don't think has really earned the respect. I'm not saying he's earned the respect. I'm not saying I'm surprised. But for Jake Bentley to be by far the most experienced quarterback returning on any team in the SEC and to miss out on all four SEC teams, all SEC teams, I think speaks a lot to just his inconsistencies, the feeling from the fan base on Jake Bentley. And, again, just the turnovers and how inconsistent he's been. Here's a crazy stat for you. Jake Bentley, he has thrown more interceptions over the last two seasons at 26 than all but one other FBS passer in that same time span. He's thrown more picks than one, just one other guy. There's only one other guy that's thrown more picks than Jake Bentley over the last two seasons in the FBS, which is, I mean, what, 150 teams? That's a crazy stat. I did not know it was that many. Again, he threw 14 a year ago. Um, and that's obviously an area he's got to get better if South Carolina is going to have any type of success in 2020 or 2019. I, I don't see Jake Bentley keeping his starting job if he throws 14 interceptions again. I just, I just simply don't. I don't think South Carolina will have any other choice but to pull him. But I think it just speaks volumes that the fact that Jake Bentley to miss out on all four. Because, I, I listen, I think Jake Bentley overall – you know, talent-wise, a better quarterback than Felipe Franks. I don't think Felipe Franks is very good, but I think simply his inconsistencies, his lack of ability to perform in a big game, I, I think is definitely something that the national pundits have taken notice of and just have given are, are giving him no respect. And I'm not saying they're completely wrong for it, to be honest with you. Um, other notables, Brian Edwards and Javon Kinlaw on the second team All-SEC. Donnell Stanley and DJ Wanham on the third team All-SEC. I thought DJ Wanham certainly underrated. I know he was hurt a year ago, but I think DJ Wanham, when healthy, is at minimum a second team All-SEC kind of guy. And then Sidarius Hutcherson, TJ Brunson, and J.C. Horn, fourth team. I also think J.C. Horn, very, very underrated there. Um, I think a guy that's just – I expect him to make a huge jump from freshman to sophomore. I, a guy that I expect to have a big-time year for South Carolina. Um Athlon got the Gamecocks going to the Tax Slayer Bowl, taking on the Wisconsin Badgers for what it's worth. Um, you know, again, some key notes in this secondary defensive line obviously receive high praise. You know, they talk about the defensive line. And I've said this before, the defensive line being as good as it's been since Jadavion Clowney was in Garnet and Black. I mean, it's really – they have really been able to build up some depth on the defensive line. You talk about, you know, Javon Kinlaw, J.J. Nibari, Ricky Sandage, um, Keir Thomas, D.J. Wanham. You know, South Carolina has really been able to build up depth on that side of the ball. And it's about time, really, for Will Muschamp and his defense. They also talk about the secondary, saying that J.C. Horn and Israel Mukwamu, they think they could be the best tandem, one of the best, if not the best, in the country. Um, and also speak highly of R.J. Roderick as well. You know, again, stuff that we've talked about. I, I, I am very, very excited about this defense. I don't know that I've really went into detail about it yet on this podcast, but I, I'm very excited about this defense and what this defense can do for South Carolina. I think – this is the first time since Will Muschamp has been here that South Carolina truly has 
dudes on the defensive side of the ball, like real dudes that have real athleticism, real talent. I mean, I think this will be as athletic a defense we've seen since 2013. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, obviously, Gamecocks have got to show it on the field. They've got to get better against the run. I think they almost gave up 200 yards rushing per game last year. Um, and in the coaching notes and the Athlon notes, you know, they have opinions from other coaches, anonymous or whatever, basically talking about you could really push South Carolina around. You could really impose your will and run on them. That's something South Carolina, again, <clears throat> you know, I know Gamecock fans are much more optimistic because of the depth on defensive line and because of the guys returning. And, you know, Javon Kinlaw being a guy that if he has a good year could be a first-round NFL draft pick. Um, there's a lot of optimism that South Carolina is going to be much, much better in that department as far as stopping the run, but they have to. They don't have a choice. They've got to be better in that department. And the secondary, again, as good as it is, I'm very excited about them, especially the young guys coming in. But the lack of depth, if you will, I think could be an issue as well. So South Carolina is still something to prove there. But I'm extremely excited about this defense because if nothing else, even if it's inexperienced, there's going to be as much athleticism on this 2019 defense as we've seen in a long time in Columbia. Um, obviously, Jekyll and Hyde, Jake Bentley, they talk about him a lot as well in the quarterbacks. And just th that's the big thing right now. The verdict's out on Jake Bentley as far as, listen, he's going to break records. Jake Bentley's going to break records at South Carolina. He may leave Columbia as the all-time winningest quarterback in South Carolina history. He is mo more than likely going to break the all-time passing yards mark, the touchdowns mark, all of it. But we've talked before, what will his legacy be at South Carolina? What will Jake Bentley's legacy be at South Carolina? Will he just be a stats guy that didn't win anything, didn't win any big games, didn't show up under the lights? Or will he use this 2019 season to really establish his legacy and establish himself as one of the greats in South Carolina history? I think that's a huge question. And will he just be consistent in 2019? Again, that's the thing. When I talk about Jekyll and Hyde, it's who you're going to get. Can he be the same guy out every single time for South Carolina? Obviously, one of the things that Athlon highlights as well is the running back situation for South Carolina. They actually rank the Gamecocks running backs units 14th in the SEC. Simply put, the running backs has not, have not been good. There's no other way to sugarcoat it. They have not been good for South Carolina, and which has hurt Jake Bentley. No doubt has hurt Jake Bentley. So who will step up? I mean, can Rico Dowdle come back healthy and finally put it together for one whole season? Will, you know, they don't have him in the, the magazine, but will Tavian Feaster transfer into Columbia? I still think there's a very, very good chance you see him in Garnet and Black. Um, can Mon Denson give South Carolina enough? Will A.J. Turner even play offense? Can Deshaun Fenwick do it for South Carolina? Maybe a freshman like Kevin Harris step up. But who in the world is going to be in the backfield next to Jake Bentley and carry the load for South Carolina? And is that guy even on campus yet? Is there a guy that can even do that for South Carolina? Something that's very much highlighted by Athlon. And, again, I don't blame him. I think it's one of the – I said before, it's the number one priority for South Carolina in the offseason. You've got to find a true number one running back, a guy that can carry the load for you. And when you need a yard on third and one or fourth and one or fourth and inches, can get that yard for you. You have to have that guy. And that has just crippled South Carolina and I think crippled Jake Bentley as well, to his credit. Um, another thing they obviously talk about that we've mentioned, who will replace Debo Samuel? Obviously, Brian Edwards set up to be the number one wide receiver this year. But, you know, just where are those receptions? Where are those yards? Where are those touchdowns going? Who's going to be that guy that's going to be that playmaker to step up and step in the shoes of Debo Samuel? Um, I think that is a huge, huge question for this team. I think that is something that the – this offense, I think, still has the potential to be very good. I was talking about it earlier with somebody else. Uh, as far as the wide receivers are concerned, I mean, you look at the unit. You've got Brian Edwards, Shai Smith, Ortre Smith is cleared and healthy, Josh Van is your top four. That's a pretty good top four. 
There are a lot of teams that would love to have a top four as far as wide receivers are concerned that looks like that. However, none of those guys, at least of right now, have shown that they are Debo Samuel in any capacity. Debo Samuel is a guy, every time he touched the football, he was a home run threat. He had the chance to go the distance. Who is going to be that guy? Is it going to be one guy? Is it going to be a Shy Smith, Josh Van? Is it going to be a couple of guys mixed together? Are there going to be some, is it going to be a combination of wide receivers and tight ends? But South Carolina is going to have to find a way to replace that playmaking ability, replace all, where all those touchdowns went. Um, because Debo was a huge piece of this offense while he was in Columbia. There's no doubt. He was a get, almost like a get-me-out-of-jail-free card for Jake Bentley a lot of different times. And you just give him the ball, and he'll make a quarterback look really, really good when he takes a screen pass and takes it 80 yards for a touchdown. So I, I think that's, again, that's going to be something we're going to be following all summer, all, all fall, before the season, and early into the season as well, is just how does this South Carolina offense live without Debo Samuel on the outside? Um, lastly, just kind of part of the breakdown – they, they do talk about the offensive line as being pretty solid, which I, I kind of read them off earlier, and I agree that I think they are a really solid unit, but a unit that needs to step it up against top top, top competition. And again, this offensive line has been very good as far as pass protection is concerned. I thought they were very, very good a year ago in pass rep- protection. Not having a running back is making this offensive line look worse than they really are. Not having a guy that can make a guy miss. and It's making the rushing numbers look really bad, which is making this offensive line look bad in that department. But you know, it's certainly an offensive line that definitely needs to step it up. South Carolina is going to play a lot of talented defensive lines. You think of the schedule. We've all talked about and heard about the schedule. And, you know, it is a defense – or it's it's an offensive line, excuse me, that is going to have to step up against the elite competition because Jake Bentley is a quarterback that simply cannot do anything if he is under any sort of duress. And the Gamecocks need to, you know, create the biggest holes as possible because right now – there's nothing telling us that the Gamecocks have anyone again on campus as of right now. There's nobody on campus that can make those guys miss. There's Marcus Lattimore's not walking through that door. Mike Davis isn't walking through that door. Corey Boyd's not walking through that door. So, you know, the Gamecocks offensive line needs to be as good as it can be to give South Carolina a push, not only for Jake Bentley, but for the running game as well. And again, I think they've got the guys there. I think Eric Wolford's done a great job recruiting there. Um, you know, I think the one thing I'll be watching I'm really concerned about, or not concerned, just intrigued to see, is how does Hank Manos perform? A guy that I thought was very overwhelmed in the bowl game. Uh, I thought Virginia really ate him up, ate his lunch in that bowl game. How does he compete? How does he How does he rebound, I guess, from that, now that he knows kind of he's the guy there? He's going to be the guy at center for South Carolina. Um, very, very interested to see that as well. All right, let's get into some listener questions. A um, lot of good listener questions. Feels so good, again, to be talking football. I know I'm obviously – you know, the baseball season was rough. I'm never happy to see baseball season go per se. Um, this season was as close as I've really come to being just ecstatic that the baseball season was over. But overall, um, we have nothing until football, which is a gift and a curse, if you will, because it's so far away. We've got a lot of questions. Episode 100, again, appreciate all your questions. Um, we'll start with Cut of Gentlemen. Do we see Bentley break records this year? And the answer is simply yes. I think you will. I think he's 20... 200 or 2600 or a, he's a very manageable number away from all-time passing yards all-time passing touchdowns so yeah I, I think without a doubt barring injury which knock on wood knock on wood he's not injured this season but um I certainly see think you're going to see Jake Bentley break a ton of records for South Carolina again could leave as the all-time winningest quarterback in South Carolina history um Ryan underscore crisp underscore JRC what do you think the signature win will be for Will Muschamp? Great question. I know you're citing the article that I wrote the other day, which was basically talking about 
you know, damn the schedule. South Carolina needs to win a big game. I mean, just to summarize the article, that's really what I was saying. What do I think the signature win will be? I'll, I'll give you what I think they could be. Um, you look at this 2019 schedule, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that South Carolina is going to beat Alabama, Georgia, or Clemson. I'm certainly not saying that. We obviously need to see progress, though, in 2019. The Gamecocks need to be able to hold their own against those teams. Put a scare in them. No doubt. They need to be able to hold their own against those teams and show that while maybe minor, the gap is closing. You know, I got in this conversation with Eric Kimry, former Gamecocks quarterback last night as well. I'm not saying that if Will Muschamp doesn't get a signature win or doesn't, you know, quote-unquote signature win, it's a – it's a term that really can have your own definition. To some people, I saw somebody saying beating Kentucky this season would be a signature win, which I think is ludicrous. But it, I'm not saying that you know Will Muschamp and the Gamecocks don't beat Alabama, Georgia, or Clemson. Will Muschamp's not the right guy. He should be fired. I think that's a silly take. I think anybody that says that is silly. But we've got to see progress somewhere. You know, whether it be one of those big three, whether it be beating Texas A&M on the road. I think, obviously, beating Kentucky is just something that needs to happen. It's not a signature win. It's something that has to change immediately, beating Kentucky. Um, but, you know, beating Texas A&M on the road, beating Florida and Columbia, a team that you should have beaten last year, continuing your streak of dominance against Tennessee. Um, you know, I'm not saying you have to win one of the big three, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia. What I am saying is you better either wanna win one of those big three or you better find a way to beat Tennessee, Florida, and I would probably say Texas A&M. I, I'm just – there has to be – South Carolina's – what are they? One in – I know Jake Bentley, I read, one in 11 against ranked competition. There has to be some sort of game. And I, if you read the article, for each – really for every coach that's ever existed, every team, there's been that game where you say, that's the turning point. We're turning the corner. You can see the progress. You can see the work paying off. You can see the recruiting paying off. That needs to happen at some point. It just does. It needs to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen this year, but we have to see some sort of progress. Um, as far as you asked me, you know, wh what will Will Muschamp's signature win be? I think the best chance this year, I think you've got a good chance to go into College Station and win and finally get that monkey off your back with Texas A&M. I think you've got a great chance to beat Florida at home in Columbia. Um, a lot of people give him Florida a lot of praise, which I'm very, very wait and see still on the Gators. Um, I think you've got a great chance to go into Knoxville and win again. I, th I think, what, it'd be the fourth time in school history you've won there. A lot of people are giving Tennessee a lot of praise, and I'm, again, very, very wait and see on Tennessee. I don't believe the hype with Tennessee at all. Um, but out of the big three, Bama, Georgia, Clemson, I'd probably say Clemson's your best opportunity to, you know, as good as they are, to – step up and, and put a real, real scare into those guys and possibly get the upset win. Um, you know, because it's at home, I, I do think Georgia's probably your second best chance simply because of the style they play will keep you in the game. If you can be good offensively, the style Georgia plays will keep you in the game. It's a pretty – it's a lot slower pace. I think South Carolina can really hang with Georgia. I know last year what happened. Um, and I'm de certainly not saying South Carolina's going to win because I certainly would not be picking South Carolina to win. But uh, I do see that as an opportunity. But in a, in a season, in a schedule that provides so much opportunity against so many ranked opponents, you've got to find a way to break through in one of these games. I, what, what basically what the point of my article was saying is that, you know, people have just been harping on the schedule continuously, nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. And I know the schedule's hard. The schedule's hard every year. I know it's a little bit harder this year. But South Carolina just going five and seven or six and six and 
really not beating anyone worth a damn, that's not going to be good enough. It's easy to say that in the postseason when – or excuse me, it's easy to say that in the preseason when there's no games on right now and say, well, you know, this is a, this is a, gim- this is a, a mulligan year for Muschamp, not a big deal. We need to see progress. It does not matter. We need to see progress. you, you got to absolutely see progress. And, again, I'm not saying if they don't win eight or more games, fire Will Muschamp. Of course I'm not saying that. I, I, I like Will Muschamp. I think they need to keep Will Muschamp there a while because South Carolina needs some sort of consistency at the head coaching position. I mean, Eric Kimry put up a stat. In 100 years of football, the average coach stays at South Carolina for three and a half years. That's simply not going to cut it. You can't build a program that way. But we've got to see some progress. We've got to see some progress. I think everyone would agree. Um, Wyland underscore the chef 33 predictions on record for South Carolina. I've answered this before. Um, I will obviously as the summer goes, get into our summer preview series or my summer preview series, as far as previewing the 2019 season, give my official predictions. So these aren't my official predictions, but right now gun to head, I would say seven to five, I would say a seven and five season. Um, daily Helensky, how's your day? It's going pretty good. I appreciate you asking hundredth episode, pretty excited about it. Um, and then lastly, Jakey Watt 08 will end this podcast on a positive note. He simply says, beat Clemson, beat Clemson indeed, beat Clemson indeed. That's, that's something I know we, we all want, including myself. It's about damn time to beat Clemson. And again, I think Gamecocks will have a really, really good chance to do it in Williams-Brice in November for sure. All right, got a very, very special interview for you guys. A guy, a guy that played quarterback for the Gamecocks from 1995 to 1998. I think one of the most underrated Gamecock quarterbacks in South Carolina history, honestly, a guy that you don't hear a ton about necessarily because he was sandwiched in between Steve Tannehill and Phil Petty, two different eras, if you will, but Anthony Wright certainly held his own, was a fantastic pro as well. Um, before we get in that, it's an interview brought to you again by our friends over at SeatGeek, the best ticket buying app by far, the only ticket buying app I use, and the only one I would recommend to you guys as well. You can actually uh, get tickets anything. It doesn't have to be sports. It can be concerts, comedy club events, anything you're going to this summer. You need tickets. Please be sure to go use our friends over at SeatGeek. Um, they rate the tickets for you, again, like I mentioned, based on a ticket rating system where you know what you're getting before you click the buy button. That's the biggest thing. You don't, you don't want to go and buy something when you don't know what you're getting. You don't know if you actually have a good seat, you know, because it, it can get very confusing buying things through the apps and stuff like that. So they rate that tickets for you. They do all the work for you. Um, Again, you use our promo code Spurs up. They're going to say you're going to save ten dollars off your first purchase. So make sure you use it wisely, obviously. But again, go download SeatGeek. Use that promo code Spurs up. Save ten dollars off of your first purchase. All right, guys, enjoy this interview with former Gamecocks quarterback Anthony Wright. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up Show is a man that played quarterback for Gamecocks football from 1995 to 1998. He ranks eighth all-time in South Carolina history with passing yards with 5,641. Also ranks seventh all-time in passing touchdowns with 38. Also had a very successful NFL career as he played from 1999 to 2007. Was also a Super Bowl champion in Super Bowl 42 with the New York Giants. I'm very, very pleased to welcome to the show former Gamecocks quarterback, Anthony Wright. Anthony, appreciate you taking the time, man. It's a pleasure to have you on. Man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's kind of go back to the beginning, Anthony. I'm really curious. You're from Vanceboro, North Carolina. Just kind of talk about – went to West Craven High School in Vanceboro, North Carolina. Um, just talk about sort of your recruiting process. What led you to come to South Carolina? Well, uh, I'm from a small town, uh, but I went to a 3A uh, class school in, my, uh, in North Carolina. Um, and, um, you know, growing up, uh, I had two other brothers and, uh, you know, I was pretty much the only one that kind of played sports. Um, 
my older brother, he kind of worked. Um, he was a worker. He one of those guys like worked at Bojangles and Western Steer. And then my younger brother, he was just uh, he was just coming along. So um, I end up uh, being one of the better quarterbacks in the country, um, and I started being recruited by South Carolina. At the time, um, I had been going to a lot of ACC schools, a lot, you know, like North Carolina, NC State, uh, those type of schools, and I hadn't seen anything quite like South Carolina uh, until I went there. And um, so I went to South Carolina when they were playing Clemson. It was a, it was a South Carolina-Clemson game. They were playing home. And I stepped into the, the stadium, and it blew me away. It was just the – uh, the the fans, um, um, the atmosphere, um, it was crazy. And so at that very moment, I was like, man, I'm coming here. You know, I was coming here. And, and really, to be honest with you, uh, you know, on top of that, but the, probably the number one reason that I, I went to South Carolina at the time was that I wanted to go to a school that was going to throw the ball, um, and Brad Scott was coming there from, from Florida State at the time. I was a big Charlie Ward fan, and I liked Florida State a lot. And um, I felt like I was going to have a chance to run that offense in that type of an environment like South Carolina presented. And so uh, that was really the big uh, a selling point for me, that I wanted to go to that school and, and try to be a part of that, uh, that type of situation. No doubt. So you get on campus in 1995 as a true freshman. You uh, you start your career, obviously, as a backup to a guy that wasn't too bad himself for South Carolina behind Steve Tannehill, mm-hmm. who ranks second all-time in yards, number one all-time mm-hmm. in career touchdown passes. Um, obviously, you played sparingly backing him up. But what were you able to take away from Steve Tannehill, who, again, was one of the most you know decorated players in South Carolina history, I would say? Um, um, I, I was able to uh... – I, I was I watched the, I watched his charisma, um, you know how he handled the media, how he handled the situations um, that he was placed in. Um, you know he really took off with Brad Scott's offense. Brad really gave him uh, the keys to that to that offense. That's when he he really put up a lot of good numbers uh, his senior year, and uh, you know that's when he really 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 took off. Um, so I was able to kind of watch and learn how he did the things that he was able to do. And uh, so I was just trying to to translate uh, my part of, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, I could say media, dealing with uh, the pressure of playing the quarterback position, uh, dealing with playing in the SEC. I was learning all of that through him. And uh, so that when I got my chance, you know, I was going to uh, be able to try to handle it um, as well as he did. So those are the things I pretty much learned from Steve um, while I was there. No doubt. So obviously there's always a transition when you go up from levels, whether it be from, you know, high school to college, college to the professional ranks. What would you say was the biggest transition for you going from playing quarterback at the high school level to playing quarterback in the SEC? Um, it was, I tell you about, I tell people this all the time. Um, the best thing that ever happened to me at South Carolina was a guy by the name of John Reeves. And you know, when I first got to South Carolina, my first couple of years, um, maybe just my first year, we had Ricky Bustle. And Ricky Bustle um, was the offensive coordinator. He had come from Virginia Tech. And um, But, you know, Ricky Bustle was more of an option guy. 
you know, coming from Virginia Tech. So I think that's one of the reasons why he left South Carolina is because he didn't mesh with the uh, four wides throwing the ball type of deal. So the next year, um, in came John Reeves. John Reeves came in, and John Reeves is the person that actually taught me the game of football. He taught me how to study. He taught me what coverages were. He taught me the responsibility of each defender in the recovery, and he taught me how to beat them. When he taught me that, it slowed the game down. You know, what happens is a lot of times people, you know, the game is fast, right? The game is mm-hmm. fast, and it gets faster at every level, right? Mm-hmm. But as a quarterback or even as a player, you can slow the game down the more you know. So the more I learned about the game, the more I was taught about the game, the slower the game began, became, right? And so Coach Reeves taught me this. He taught me how to read coverages. He taught me um, how, to, how to throw hots. He taught me how to read blitzes. He taught me how to throw sight adjusts. And he taught me how to, how to study, you know, how to sit down and look at the plays that I have and go over every single possible thing that could happen in, in those plays. And so when he taught me that, it slowed the game down in college. And even when I went to the pros, it slowed the game down because I, was, I had already done the homework prior to playing the game. So that when I got in and played the game, it was slow. It was slower than what it could have been if I didn't know what I was doing. So I think, you know, obviously when you go from, from high school to college to pros, it speeds up. But, you know, your awareness of the game can match that, and it can slow it down a lot more, a lot more than what people uh, really realize. For sure. So I'm curious to get your uh, <clears throat> your take on this, Anthony, because I'll be honest. I was born in 1990, so I didn't get to watch you, obviously, while you were at South Carolina Live or anything. Yeah. But I've gone back, watched a ton of highlights, and one thing I noticed about you, I'm curious to know, in your opinion, sort of what your playing style was as far as your demeanor. Because you took over starting quarterback in 1996 for Carolina, went 131 for 244, uh, you know, threw for almost 2,000 yards, eight touchdowns. Um, but one thing I always noticed about you watching in the highlights, you were always a very, like, level-headed guy. You didn't seem like the rah-rah kind of guy. Like, you know, you threw a touchdown, it was business as usual. You scored a touchdown rushing, mm-hmm. it was business as usual. Is that the way that you played? I mean, were you kind of just like a you, – you come to the field to do your business and leave, really don't get too high or too low type mentality? Or how, how would you describe sort of your playing style on the field? Um. Uh, I think I was a little bit of, of both. I mean, I, I, there were times I, – I remember a time we were playing uh, Mississippi State where um, they kind of rattled my cage a little bit. Um, um, and then there were times where I was kind of cool um, when I was playing. I, 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 I loved to compete. Uh, I was very competitive. Um, I, lo- I wanted to win. Um, I just – you know, I was trying to learn how to, how to deal with it all, you know what I mean, at the time. I think that uh, you know, the you know my my the first year I played, I, w- I had Deuce Staley, and I had uh, Marcus Robinson. I had a few good guys that played in the NFL that helped take a lot of pressure off of me. And um, when I came into my junior year, um, a lot of people really don't know this, man. But when I came into my junior year, um, that's when I had my best year at South Carolina because that, that's when I was actually running the Florida State offense that I wanted to run. That's when he really gave me the keys to the to the vehicle to let me do what I do or do what I was, you know, have fun. 
And up until the point when I got hurt, which was about the eighth or ninth game of the season, um, me and Peyton Manning were one and two in every statistical court category in the SEC. Like, he and I were battling it out for who was going to be the top dog. And um, either he was one and I was two, or I was one and he was two. And see, a lot of people don't really really know that. And um, so I got hurt against Tennessee and missed the last two or three games. Like, that's the last three games. And at the end of the season, I think at that point when I got hurt, we were like either five and two, six and two, or five and three, or six and three, something like that. And at the end of the season, we lost the last three games. And at the end of the season, they fired John Reeves. Mm-hmm. When they fired John Reeves, they brought in a guy by the name of Chuck Reed. And he came in with this uh, 1982 or the 83 Clemson offense. And we was like, we went from like four wides, three wides, to like three tight ends, or two tight ends, and one receiver. It, it was it, it was horrendous. Mm. And we went like, I'll put it to you like this. My senior year, it got so bad. This, this is how bad, this right here is indicative of my senior year. We were playing Ole Miss. And at this particular time, I think we were one and three. And so we went back to the Florida State offense. Now, mind you, we went to the Florida State offense. During that game, I counted for four touchdowns. I had three passing and one rushing myself in that one game against Ole Miss. Mm. This is indicative of this is indicative of our year. We have the ball on our one yard line on, on our one yard line and we're coming out. We get in three backs, triple I. Now we're on the one yard line coming out. We get in triple I and hand the ball to the last guy. For a safety, we lose the game by two points. That was indicative of my senior year at South Carolina. And so that's one of those things, man, that, you know, at the time, you know, as you're going through it, you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, to deal with it the best way you can. But that was probably one of the toughest times uh, that I've had in my playing career. No doubt. And I want to get to your senior career. I want to go back, though, really quickly to your first year, your first full year starting for South Carolina in 96, which was your sophomore year, because, uh, you know, just taking a look, you guys had a pretty solid team that year. I mean, you were talking about your former teammate, Deuce Staley. I think of Jamel Kelly. I believe he was still there. Zola Davis was there. Um, and you guys come out of the gate, beat UCF pretty good. And then there's a, there's a you know, the South Carolina-Georgia game, it feels like it's always a high-profile matchup, always a good game. And you guys come in that one, I believe. I remember watching the telecast and remember them talking about Georgia was heavily favoring that one. You guys come out, sort of shocked the world, beat those guys 23-14. to 14. I remember Deuce Staley had, I think, like 229 all-purpose yards. And obviously, again, this is your second game as the full-time starter. Just sort of talk about what you remember from, uh, from that night beating Georgia at Williams-Brice like that. Oh, man. Well, uh, I, I wanted to be relaxed. You know, I knew it was a big game. Uh, it was a nationally televised game. Um, you know, everybody had been talking about it all week long. So I, I wanted to come out and, and, and play well. I wanted to come out and um, and, and play with them myself. Um, 
And I, I think I was able to do that. I think the biggest thing for me at that particular time was I didn't want the game to overwhelm me. And, uh, and once the game got started and once we started playing, uh, it became like any other game. Um, I mean, the confidence began to grow. And then plus, I had Deuce back there, you know, shaking every, shaking the whole team and, and, and doing what he was doing. So he really took a lot of pressure off of me. Um, I had big Marcus Robinson out there where I was throwing the ball up to. He was making things happen for me. Corey Bridges was on one side. He was making things happen for me. Um, Zola Davis was out there making things happen for me. So, you know, we had a lot of playmakers. Um, and we we went out there and we we shocked the world. Like I said, they came in as favorites and uh, we beat them. Um, um, I had a pretty good game. Um, did pretty well, and so you know they were always they were always that that team that um, that we looked forward to playing uh, the second game of the season because we knew we felt like you know, that was kind of barometer for for our season. How much fun was it was UJ playing with a, a guy like Deuce Staley that I'm sure had to take some of the pressure off you at the uh, at the quarterback position? Oh man, it was great. The funny thing about it is that you know, at a particular time, Deuce didn't really come up with a come in with a, a, a ton of notoriety or fanfare. You know what I mean? He he was you know, the year before that he was splitting time with uh Stanley Pritchett and uh so he came in, you know, and, and he did when he was doing what he was doing, it really shocked a lot of people. And uh he's probably one of the most underrated running backs ever at South Carolina. Uh, and and I you know, you know I, I've been able to play uh at any le- at every level, right? I've been able to play at every level. I would take Deuce over a lot of running backs that's ever played at South Carolina. And, but p- a lot of people don't really un- – I had a chance to play with him and I had a chance to see him, you know, he, he was strong, um, he was shifty, and he had heart. And having him back there – like I said, really took a load off of me because I knew I could hand the ball to him and I knew that I was going to get three or four yards. No doubt. So, again, talking about that 96 season, you guys had a pretty good squad that year. You look, you beat the Georgia Bulldogs, obviously. You had some close calls, lost to Auburn by four points on the road. Uh, They were a ranked team, obviously had some battles with Tennessee and Florida. But let's move to the Clemson game. Um, At Clemson, they were ranked 22nd in the country. You guys pull off a 34-31 win. Obviously, being a guy from North Carolina, I'm sure the, the Clemson-South Carolina rivalry was a little bit foreign to you. But just sort of talk about, you know, that game, your first time as a starting quarterback at South Carolina, you pick up the win against Clemson. And when did it click for you just how big of a game and how much hatred there was between the two schools? Uh, during the course of the game. <laughs> what I'm, listen, uh, I think that was my first time really realizing the difference between a regular game and a rival game. Um, they were, I mean, they came out like some bats out of hell. And they were full speed, full tilt, doing everything they could to try to hurt you. It was it was definitely a battle. And it was cold that night. Um that was the first time I ever was in a, a football game that was that physical, uh, that was that uh, fast um, and that emotional. Uh, and I, I put it to you like this. I was happy to get the first quarter over because <laughs> after the first quarter, then things kind of died down a little bit. No doubt. So, obviously, you talked about, again, your junior season, 1997, was your best in a South Carolina uniform. It's really hard to debate that when you look at the stats. 
uh, through 18 touchdowns, passed for 1,685 yards. Um, your best completion percentage as well, yet while you were at South Carolina. I want to talk about, though, that year you suffered an injury. Um, you tore your anterior cruciate lig- ligament in your right knee when it gets the, in the Tennessee game. And it's funny, I actually saw the, the picture you put up on Facebook of, I guess, Zola Davis kind of crouched down next to you. Just, you know, talk about how tough that was. You know, when you're in the middle of your best season, you know, obviously in your college career and you go down with an injury, I mean, just – how tough was that was that for you? The injury itself, and then coming back from that during the rehab and stuff like that. Uh, I, I was devastated. I was devastated. Um, you know, I had never really had a major injury in, uh, in, in sports. Period. Um, uh, from a child all the way up to you know when I was when I got into college, uh, probably the most I had ever had was maybe a sprained ankle, and um, to have something like that happen to me. Um, and I just remember uh, lying on the on the ground, and I just remember asking um, the doctor, um, you know, was it bad? And uh, he never really answered me, but I could tell by the look on his face that it was. So um, I think that, um, you know, it was just, you know, the, the very next day um, I had the surgery, and uh, my parents came uh, down, and um, you know, and they. I stayed there for the surgery, and then they took me back to North Carolina, back to my hometown once it was done. So, I, you know, it, it was really tough. It was really tough. Uh, like I said, I was having a great year. Um, you know, we were winning. Um, we only needed one more win, I think, to get to the um, – to be eligible for a bowl. Um, and so that was, it was very frustrating. We had a couple big wins against, like, Kentucky. Um, when we were underdogs, we actually came back and beat Kentucky. Um, you know, a lot of teams were really uh, starting to respect what the things that we were doing. So I think it, it was really frustrating uh, for me um, when that happened. And then, like I said, going through the rehab and, you know, being that that happened in November, I mean, October, October, November, like October 31st. So being that it happened in October, November, um, you know, I was going to have less than a year to get healthy for the next season. So I was trying to beat time you know, being able to try to get back for my senior year. So I had a lot going on, man. It was tough. It was difficult. But, um, you know, the only thing I knew was to fight. You know what I mean? That's all I knew. Uh, all I knew was to keep pushing, keep going, and and, uh, and to see what was going to happen. So that's what I did. I just kept I just kept uh, rehabbing. I just kept uh, doing everything that was asking me to do. And I just knew I was going to try to make it back for the next uh, for the next season. And then just to follow up on that question, again, like I said, I, you know, I was on your Facebook page and you have that picture up of you. It's you laying on the ground and Zola Davis next to you. And uh, it seems like a pretty, obviously, a, a, an intimate moment, you know, a friend caring for a friend. Just kind of talk about, again, you had a lot of great teammates while you were at South Carolina, but, you know, just just talk about your relationship with a, another big-time playmaker that you had on your offense, Zola Davis. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I tore my ACL, MCL, meniscus, and two hamstring tendons. And when I was down there, you know, I, I came in with Zola. Uh, Zola and I were the two uh, prize recruits to come in that year. And we were roommates. Um, you know, we got up in the morning together to go work out. You know, he, we stayed on each other. We pushed each other. Um, uh, you know, so when he saw me down, now one, of the, one of the things that we always said was that, if we ever stayed on the ground, then we were seriously hurt, you know. 
there have been times where we get hit hard or something like that would happen and we would just get up, shake it off. We might be a little woozy. We'll shake it off and come back to the sideline. But we weren't going to lay on the ground. And so if he ever saw me down and I couldn't get back up, then he knew I was really hurt. So when he saw me down, he knew I was hurt. And that's why he came over there to make sure that I was mentally okay. Because he knew that he knew that he knew that the only way that I would stay down is if I was really, really hurt. Mm-hmm. And so to have somebody like that in your corner uh, that understands you, you know, like you say, you know, we were roommates, so we talk throughout the night about, you know, trying to make it and and and, and doing what we got to do to try to get to the next level. We talked about that all night long. So to um, to see me, for him to probably see me down down there probably hurt him a lot um but at the time it was nothing he could do i mean but be be support for me and that's what he was doing like as you look at the picture everybody else is standing up right mm. but he's the only one that's down with me right and to me like that touched me more than anything because it's like you know he wanted to get down to my level to where i was so he could look me in my eyes and see exactly where i was and that really like i said that really uh really really stood with me that's awesome for sure. So moving to your senior year, obviously, Anthony, obviously it didn't go the way you, you guys wanted. You know, won the first game and lost the next 10. Your stats overall were um, pretty good. But you mentioned sort of the the, the coaching changes that had happened, the, the change in offense your senior year. And, you know, I'd imagine you'd cite a lot of the, the struggles that senior year to that. Uh, Brad Scott obviously fired at the end of 1998. Lou Holtz hired going into, uh, into 1999. You know, we had your your buddy, your former teammate John Abraham, on the show, and he had his opinions on Brad Scott. And I think I think a lot of South Carolina fans do as well. But I mean, overall, what were your? I mean, what was your overall opinion on Brad Scott? And would you cite that 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 change in philosophy and offense? Would you cite that as the reason that 1998 didn't go the way that you guys wanted it to? Well, I think the change in offense was his demise. Um, I, I know I, he I, he had a great scheme. You know, his offensive scheme, well, he had a great scheme. Um, where I think they actually fell short was in the recruiting process. Mm-hmm. I just think they fell short in the recruiting process. They weren't bringing in enough talent to be able to play at an SEC level, right? Um, I think his offensive scheme that he had prior to Chuck Reedy, um, the stuff that he was doing with, my, with, with uh, Tannehill and myself uh, for the first three or four years, I think he was on the right path with that. Um, but he didn't bring in the right kind of talent uh, to, match the, to match that. And then my senior year, like I said, he changed up the philosophy a little bit with the Chuck Reedy style, which we didn't have. Uh, you, know, it was, you know, it was time to, to, to shelf what Coach, Coach Reedy was, was trying to install. Um, but, you know, like, I, again, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for Coach Scott because Coach Scott gave me the opportunity to to be with Coach Reedy, to be to to play uh, in the SEC. I mean, to be with Coach Reeves, to play in the SEC, to um, to learn about the game of football. Um, and so I'm very thankful for the opportunity that he gave me. Like I can't sit here and bash him um, about anything. You know, I mean, I you know, I I have my opinion on what I think that he probably went wrong or whatnot, but I can't bash him. Would never bash him. About about anything that um that he was able to come. I mean, you gotta remember, what people you know people are quick to bash him, right? 
But at the same time, you know, he won the first ever bowl game for the university. Now, there have been a lot of coaches that come through the university, mm. right? And he was the first coach to ever win a bowl game at the university. But people, you know, people overlook that. They, won't, they don't want to talk about you know, that aspect of it. Um, and he brought in a great, a, a great scheme to, to, to be able to do so. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for Coach Scott. Um, like I said, I just, I just felt like in those couple areas, it's probably where, he, it's probably where his demise was, you know, his, his lack of uh, being able to recruit and, and um, the ability that, I don't know, about my, my senior year when he changed out the offense from and got rid of Coach Reeves and brought in Chuck Reedy. And, and change the offense. I think those got probably his two biggest mistakes um, while he was there. For sure. So, you know, we talked about your relationship with Steve Tannehill, obviously, who groomed you to be the starting quarterback at South Carolina. You obviously groomed the next starting, starting quarterback at Carolina, which was Phil Petty, who went on to win back-to-back Outback Bowls of a pretty successful career himself. Just sort of talk about <laughs> your relationship with him and, you know, what you think you were able to pass on to him after, after you left South Carolina. Well, I think Phil was a very um, mature kid. I mean, he was very mature. Um, my senior year, um, after especially after that Ole Miss game, they started subbing myself. They started subbing him in with me, and so we started subbing out a lot because they were getting him ready, getting him ready to play uh, for the next year. And he was able to come in and do a great job, man. He did a great. He had a great uh, knack at uh, going through progressions, and he actually um, helped me. Uh, I was able to watch him go through certain types of progressions. We had like uh, these spacing routes and he was able to uh, go from one side to the other. And I was able to watch him actually learn from him on that. So he did, he, he was very mature. He was well coached. He was a, uh, he was a precision quarterback. He was an intelligent quarterback. And I knew he was going to have a great career. Um, I felt like he was going to have a great career and he did. So, um, you know, that was one of those things that I, you know, the, the best thing I could try to teach him at that particular point, especially with the way that senior year was going, was I was trying to teach him what I was hoping he would learn from me was the humility of the game. You know what I mean? Like never get too high, never get too low. Always stay within yourself and always believe in yourself. You know what I mean? No matter what. Because I think the very next year they end up going like 0-11 or something. So he went 0-11 the next year, and then he ended up winning two Outback Bowls. So he was able to experience those those lows and those highs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, he, he you know he, they went 0-11, then he came back and went two Outback Bowls. So he was able to experience them both. And he did a, he did a great job at, at, at uh, handling it, you know. He, uh, and so I, I think that um, yeah, I was – I'm happy and was proud to have um, – to, to see him win. You know what I mean? To see him win those two outback balls, I was probably the happiest of anybody when they won it because of the guys and the relationship with the guys that I had made on the team that were still playing. For sure. So you talked about, Anthony, just how much of a competitor you are. Again, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time harping on the 98 season, but, you know, how tough, I guess, was it for you personally during 98? Because, again, I mean, you're, you're coming off an injury. You're a guy that's trying to play in, in the National Football League. And, I mean, I, I you know, I think I can – I think you'd probably agree it's a little bit tougher to get noticed by, you know, teams when you're not when you're on a team that just isn't very good. I mean, it's hard to shine in those situations. But I mean, as a competitor as you are, how were you able to stay positive and grind through the ninety eight season? I mean, I didn't like I said, I didn't know anything else. I didn't know anything else other than to compete. You know, I mean I was gonna play 
you know, no, no matter what, I was going to play. Um, and so, and I, I just, I just went along and through the season. Um, and I, like I said, at that particular point, especially after that Ole Miss game, that began to substitute myself with uh, with Phil. So, you know, at that particular point, you know, it was a lot of uh, mental stress on me because, you know, here I'm at a point now where I went from being one of the top quarterbacks in the league to being a guy that's being subbed out, um, not even playing full games. And so that was kind of what began to happen to me uh, during my senior year. And uh, i never forget after the Clemson game, uh, we ended up going to Clemson, we obviously we lost. And I remember coming back to my, my apartment and just thinking like, wow, like, like, like what, do I, what do I go from here? Like, what, what next? Like, I can't believe what happened just happened. You know, I can't believe we just like lost 10 straight games. Like we just lost 10 straight games in a row. And um, so then February came and I get a letter from the combine, right? I get a letter from the combine and they invite me to come to the combine. So I'm like, wow, I'm getting an invite to go to the combine. I was, I was amazed. And I tell people this all the time. I tell people this story. Um, I go to the combine in 98, right? And in 98, there was a big quarterback class, right? They had Donovan McNabb. They had Achilles Smith. They had Dante Culpepper. They had some couple guys out of uh, uh, out of California. They probably had eight, nine guys that were drafted, eight, nine quarterbacks that were drafted. Me and this guy from, uh, uh, where was he from? I think he was from, he was from an HBCU school. It was me and him. And we lit it up at the combine. I'm talking about by far the best two quarterbacks out there. No, by far. And so much so that the scouts had, was talking about me being a, a, a late first, second round draft pick. We tore it up that, that bad, that much. And what happened was, and this is, this is a story that very few people know. What happened was I went into the physical. And when I went to the physical, every team that saw me failed me on my physical. And I didn't know that until my agent called me in for a meeting at South Carolina with another doctor. And doctor, they sat me down in the office and they told me, that they had four teams, well, my agent told me that he had four teams that wanted to bring me in and redo my knee, let me sit out, and then try out for the next season. But that all the teams have failed me, all the teams have failed me on my physical because my ACL, my ACL wasn't tied down properly to begin with. Mm. So I played my whole senior year on a knee that, was, that had not been reconstructed correctly that I didn't know about until I went to the combine and they told me about it. After I had went out there and performed well. This is a true story. Wow. I mean, what, what, was, your, what was your initial thoughts when that happened? I have to imagine you have to be like in shock at that point. I was in shock. I was in shock. I, was, I didn't know what to do. I, I mean, I, was in, I, I had everything running through my mind. You know, lawsuits. Um, uh, I'm looking at my agent like, hey, are you serious? Because I, I, just, I, mean, I just went to the combine and ripped it up. So much so that I went back from being a, like a second to a late first rounder. 
And just like that, it was taken away because my knee surgery was done incorrectly. And um, so I was, I, I was, my, my head was spinning. So my coach, so my, my, my agent asked me, what do I want to do? Like I said, like I said there, was, there were four teams that wanted to uh, bring me in and redo the surgery and just let me sit out for the whole year, rehab for the whole year, and then come back the next season. I told my agent, I was like, well, well, the problem with the lawsuit was this. It was that they said it was going to be hard for me to prove that he did a, 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 the surgery incorrectly because I had played a whole year on it. And it's also hard to get other doctors to, uh, to testify against other doctors. Right. So, so that was what I was battling with that. So I thought that was a lose-lose. And so I said, well, what I do is, you know, I played my senior year on it. You know, I, I felt like I was fine. I was like, let's see what happens. Right. I said, let's see what happens. So he said, okay, let's do it. So we go into the, you know, into the draft and uh, I don't get drafted. And I get one call from Pittsburgh. I get one call from Pittsburgh. I go to Pittsburgh. Um, there's Cordell Stewart, Mike Tomzak, Pete Gonzalez, and myself. And uh, go there and make the team. I mean, it was so bad. I mean, I made the team. I made the roster. Man. I, not, I made the roster as an undrafted free agent with a torn ACL, MCL meniscus, hamstring, ten, two hamstring tenders off a of one in ten team. And I remember playing in the preseason games in Pittsburgh and reporters asking me, how in the world did your team go, did your team go one and 10 with you at quarterback? <laughs> I was asked that more than once by multiple reporters. Yeah. How did you guys go one and 10 with you at quarterback? And I would just always tell them it was bigger than me. I would never go into more detail. I would say, it was bigger than me. Right. And so I end up making that squad. Like I said, I end up, you know, the way I came into the league, it was going to be hard. It's hard to make it as an undrafted free agent. But the way I came into the league and to last, it says a lot about, uh, you know, my perseverance uh, and about, I got, like I told you before, all I knew was to, was to fight, you know, to just, just to keep pushing. You know, even my senior year, all I knew was to keep pushing. You know, it was it was a horrendous year, but all I knew was to keep going. Just you, you just gotta keep playing and just see what happens. So my whole NFL career was just keep pushing, mm. just keep pushing, <clears throat> and that's what I kept doing. I just kept pushing. I know I, I I went from one team to the next. I went from Pittsburgh to Dallas, played there. I got cut from Dallas because of my knee. That was the last one. Every every time I, I got so I got released twice. Both times I got released was because of my knee. Pittsburgh released me because of my knee, and Dallas released me because of my knee. Now, when I was in Dallas, and I realized that they were going to release me because of my knee, I had it redone in Dallas at Dallas's expense. So Dallas had to pay for me to have my knee reconstructed, and they had to, you know they had to continue to pay my salary and the rehab. And so, um, but I got it redone in Dallas. In um, um, oh, on two thousand or yeah, at the end two thousand, I got it redone in Dallas. Or two thousand, two thousand one, one of those. 
I had it redone in Dallas. No doubt. So I want to get into your NFL career in just a second, but I have one more question regarding your college career because yeah. I think it's something it's, it's something very intriguing to me, and I, I'm curious to get your take on it. Maybe it's something I'm fabricating in my head, but do do you ever feel like I know I you know I saw your your header on Facebook again, and I, I've seen anybody that's seen the new indoor facility. Obviously, your your mural is up in the quarterback's room, which I think is absolutely awesome. But my question to you is this: Do you ever feel like your career at South Carolina was somewhat maybe overshadowed. I, I sort of view you as like an underrated guy, underappreciated guy because you're in between yeah. Steve Tannehill, who was so decorated at South Carolina, and then Phil Petty, who had the successes he had. I mean, do you ever feel that way, that you were a little bit underappreciated, undervalued at South Carolina? Because, again, me being someone that wasn't able to watch you necessarily, you know, in your prime at Carolina, you know, just be completely honest and transparent, you weren't the first guy I ever heard about, right? But, I mean, you take a look back at your career, and right. especially what you did professionally – um, you know, South Carolina hasn't had many quarterbacks start a game in the NFL, much less I believe you started one in the playoffs as well. I don't think that's ever happened. So, I mean, do you do you do you ever get that vibe? Obviously, that I mean, or do you ever get that vibe that maybe you were a little bit, you know, underappreciated at Carolina? Yeah. What you did? Most definitely, most definitely. I, I mean, I had a, you know, I had a grudge for a long time, um, just based off what I just told you. You know, I you know I just felt like, and I knew I was better than 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 what uh was being represented on myself. I knew I was better than that. Uh, my NFL career is an example of that. You know, people don't pay you to play this game because they like you. They play you they pay you to play this game because you you're good. You have a skill set. You know, obviously if somebody was better, they would have did more than what I was able to do in the NFL. And Nobody has been able to do it yet. And so, you know, I, I, do, I did feel that way. And that's why that mural meant so much to me. Because I, know I remember going to my senior banquet. And they'll forget this. I remember going to my senior banquet and not being recognized uh, at all. At all, period. The only person until until um, I was recognized by Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz saw the way that the banquet was going, and he personally stood me up himself and recognized me and told me how good he thought I was and told me that if he had me at Notre Dame, that he would have won a national. i never forget those words. If he would have had me at Notre Dame, he would have won another national championship. And he stood me up in front of everybody. And did. I remember that because the entire time I'm sitting in the banquet. Now, here I am. I've started for this team for three years. I was just one of the best quarterbacks in the country my junior year. And I went from that to, to like I said, when we went one and ten, I went from that position to I was in my banquet my senior year and didn't get recognized at all, like nothing. And so – I just remember sitting in that banquet, just feeling the way I was feeling. And I was ready to leave and all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I, I do feel that way. You know, and that's what I mural I meant so much to me because it was some, I, somebody, rec someone recognized what I did. Like, I, I was recognized for what I did. And, uh, and the, even though I played in the NFL and all that stuff, 
you know, no matter where you go and what you do, you know, you still want to feel appreciated for what you were able to do. You know what I mean? And I just feel like, like I told you, man, my junior year, you know, me and Peyton Manning were one and two in every category in the SEC before I got hurt. And then my senior year came and it just tore up everything. And so, yeah, I do feel that way. Um, because like I said, like you just said, you know, you know, nobody else has been able to do what I've done. It's not like South Carolina is, is, is putting out number one draft picks year after year. And they're not putting out hardly any draft picks in the quarterback position year after year. And so I was able to go in undrafted and play for 10 years. Not only played for 10 years, I started a ton. I started in Dallas. I started in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Started a ton. I, I led Baltimore to the playoffs, like you said. And so, yeah, I do feel that sometimes, but I, I, I understand. You know what I mean? I understand it. I, I was able to let that grudge go after a few years. After a few years, and I was playing in the league, and, you know, you start being in the locker room, and guys are talking about their colleges, and they're, you know, going back and forth. You know, guys from Miami or fussing with guys from Florida State. You know, I wanted to have something to talk about in that particular point. Um, you know, that's when we had kind of started winning a little bit, you know. So I began to talk about South Carolina beating Ohio State and <laughs> South Carolina beating other teams. And so I kind of got over the grudge I had, um, you know, you from the surgery to my senior year and all that stuff. And uh, I was able to let it go. But like I said, that, that the mural, uh, it was definitely something that really made me uh, and that's what I love about Muschamp, you know, because Muschamp sent me that. Coach Muschamp sent me that. And uh, he didn't have to. You know, he sent that to me um, to show me respect, and I really appreciated that. You know, um, even when Spurrier was, was, was coaching, Spurrier was, was big on inviting me back. You know, Spurrier really wanted me to come back. He, he was really big on inviting me back, getting me involved with the guys, having me around. So Spurrier did it. Um, and like I said, Coach Muschamp did it. Uh, and uh, Coach Holtz, like I said, he stood me up in the uh, in the, in the uh, banquet, and he recognized me. But yeah, um, you're 100 right. For sure. So I'm just curious again. You talked about you bounced around a lot of different teams. Obviously, Pittsburgh, Dallas, Baltimore, Cincinnati, New York, and had your successes at each. But just kind of overall, you know, I talked about earlier the 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 way the game changes from you go from high school to college, college to pro. Describe to the people that will never obviously have the opportunity to do so. I mean, what is it like to be a starting quarterback in the NFL? Because we hear all the time, you know, the league is a business and, you know, we hear certain things about the NFL. But from someone that has actually done it on the field, I mean, how would you describe that, what it's like to be a starting quarterback in the National Football League? Oh, it's great, man. It's, it's a level of, of, of faith that uh, the, the coaching staff or the organization has in you. They're telling you that they believe in you. You know what I mean? And uh, that's, you know, that's incredible. Um, uh, especially, like I said, for me, especially the way that I did it, you know, I came in undrafted, uh, you know, torn up knee, uh, one in 10 team. And these guys said, we believe in you enough that you can, you're a starter in the NFL. Like you can start in this league. You know, so for me, it was tremendous. It was, a, it was like a, um, uh, I was being approved. It was like an approval to say, yeah, "Man, you you you're really good. You know, you you really can play this game. Like, you know, you're you're not a guy that is just you know just holding up a spot on the on the roster. You're a guy that can actually come in and play. 
And and the reason why I even started playing, you know, that was even my first chance to play. But the reason why I started playing in in Baltimore was because the defensive players went upstairs to the to, to the to the to the um, front office and asked them to let me play. I'm talking about Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Terrell Suggs. Those guys went to Ozzy because of what I was doing to them in practice. They went to Ozzy themselves and was like, we want Anthony to start. Because what happened was Kyle Bowler, who they had drafted in the first round from Cal, got hurt, right? So I was the third-string quarterback. So Kyle Bowler, it was Kyle Bowler, Chris Redmond, and then myself. They had, I was third-string. And Kyle got hurt against St. Louis. And Chris went in and didn't play so well. And so for the next game, the players went to the front office and routes to the front office that they wanted me to be the starter. And that's how I began. That's how I started um, starting in, 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 um, in Baltimore was because of the players. So um, when, when stuff like that happens, when things like that happen, of course, it makes you feel good you know, as a player because you know all the hard work you put in and you may know the trials and tribulations you've been through. Right. And so um, when players do it, it means uh, it means uh, a lot more. No, absolutely. So your career, I'm curious, your career in Dallas, I mean, you you were obviously inserted in the line. Troy Aikman suffered a concussion, um, played in a big win against Washington, obviously a huge rival of the uh, the Dallas Cowboys. But I mean, what? As far as what was the uh, what was the media pressure like in Dallas? Because I mean, there, there's there's a difference in being a starting quarterback on an NFL team and being the starting quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, how, how would you describe that? Oh, it was amazing, man. I grew up as a Dallas Cowboy fan. There you go. Um, yeah, I grew up as a Dallas Cowboy fan. So, you know, when I was called to to start, it's funny. You know, uh, when I went to Dallas, I was on a practice squad for ten weeks. This is how the business works, right? So I came from Pittsburgh to Dallas. I got to Dallas uh, during the first game of the week. So I got there like on a Monday for the first game of the week. Didn't do any uh, OTAs or any summer camp. First game of the week. So for the first 10 weeks of the season, I'm on a practice squad. And I'm running routes. I'm playing DB. I'm running down special team. I'm doing whatever they want me to do in practice, right? So I'm on a, I'm on a practice squad. Well, after the 10th game of the season, I get a call from Miami. Miami wants to bring me up to their team and put me on the roster. Well, Jerry calls me, and Jerry's like, well, Anthony, we really like you. We don't want you to go anywhere. We want you to be a cowboy. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay here and be a cowboy. They left me up the sixth game, right? I mean, I mean, they left me up. Left me up. We got six games left. They left me up, and I start the last five. <laughs> now, mind you, I was just running routes and, and doing everything else. I start the last five. So for the last five games of the season, we're playing against the top five defenses in the league and I'm a starting quarterback, the pressure, the pressure was enormous, um, but I was able to deal with it. You know I mean? For some reason, I, I, I just, I think, you know, I, I, I did like meditations and, uh, and prayers and stuff to try to keep myself from getting overwhelmed with the situation. But there's a lot of pressure being a Dallas Cowboys fan. I mean, Dallas Cowboys um, player, because there's so many Dallas Cowboys fans. Mm. Right, there are more Dallas Cowboys fans than you can ever imagine, right? And so I didn't 
I didn't realize how, how many Dallas Cowboy fans there were until I retired, right? Once I retired, because everybody, when they remember me, most people remember me from the Dallas Cowboys, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm like, wow, there's, there's a ton of Dallas Cowboy fans out here, more so than anything else. So the Dallas Cowboys in Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, the amount of pressure there is to be a Cowboy player is tremendous. And so all eyes are on you. You're being critiqued at all times. And uh, it comes with the territory of being a Cowboy. For sure. So kind of uh, kind of an off-the-wall story here. Your, your time in Baltimore, um, you know, your first start in Baltimore, you guys lose the Miami Dolphins, but I, I believe it was the next week, the Seattle Seahawks yeah. game. Um, yeah. you, you basically went off through four touchdowns, 319 passing yards, 44 to 41. Crazy game, but more of the story of the game I was reading, I certainly want to ask you about is uh, Ravens head coach Brian Billick gave your game the game ball to your wife, actually, for waiting until after the game to uh to go into labor can can you talk about that a little bit yeah man it was crazy man we, <laughs> we, we uh we had the big win and then uh uh my wife at the time she goes into uh she goes to the hospital and, and uh, she's trying to hold off <laughs> and uh so you know she um so she ends up having my uh my second child um uh, and uh, it, it was a big deal, man. It was, it was, you know, it was all over ESPN, all over the local uh, radio and, and television and stuff. And um, and uh, yeah, she got the game ball. She actually got a game ball. He gave when I came in. When we came in on uh, on Monday, you know, I'm thinking he's gonna give me the game ball. I'm like, yeah, we got a game ball. And he was like, yeah, this is for your wife. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, okay. So she she actually she got a game ball, and, uh, and like I said, she's. Uh, Giving my second child and uh, and uh, and that that's been 15 years ago now. Mm. So crazy. so Anthony, while you didn't start the game, I certainly want to ask you about the 2007 season. You were you were signed with as a free agent with the New York Giants. Um, obviously, the backup to Eli Manning. You are also with Tim Hasselbeck and Jared Lorenzen, but you're the third string quarterback. In, either way, you played in one of the most memorable, or you were in one of the most memorable Super Bowls of all time, Super Bowl 42. Obviously the uh, immaculate reception, as they call it. You guys defeated the uh, the undefeated New England Patriots. I remember everybody had New England that game. You guys were able to pull it out. And, I mean, you're a Super Bowl champion. I, I mean, how how awesome – you know, again, I, while I know you would have loved to have been on the field, I mean, how awesome was it to at least end your NFL career with the Super Bowl ring? Hey, man, listen. Hey, it was unbelievable. Uh, and I was the backup, too. I won third string. Like, uh, third string stopped after Baltimore. <laughs> I was never gotcha, – I was gotcha, no longer okay. third string. So I was second string, um, but um, I mean, it, it was unbelievable, man. It, it, it was great. Uh, I, I tell you, man, the the ride to the Super Bowl was was crazy. You know what I mean? From Tampa to Dallas, and then going into Green Bay, that was might have been the coldest game I've ever been in in my life. And then playing against the Pats in the Super Bowl, that that whole we would call the road warriors that whole ride that we that we went on was unbelievable i mean it was just game after game was an upset i don't know if tampa game was an upset but we were playing at tampa so i guess it wasn't upset but the tampa game was crazy the, the giant i mean the uh, cowboys game was crazy before we played the cowboys they it was said that jerry had already bought uh the nfc championship uh ticket games I mean, tickets for the game for, for certain people, right? Mm. 
So he had already bought, bought tickets. That was the word in the locker room. Then we ended up beating them and then going to Green Bay, playing against Brett Favre in the, in, in the Packers. And I'm talking about it must be negative 20 and negative 30 degrees out there. I'm talking about it was freezing. And, and Eli is out there throwing darts. I mean, he's out there throwing darts. And we're moving the ball up and down the field. And we end up winning with the field goal, right? So we win that game. Next thing you know, we're playing against a mighty pass. Now, mind you, we, we had just lost to the pass uh, in our last regular season game of the, of the year. And now it was a good game. Now, it wasn't like they blew us out. But we fought them tooth and nail and almost beat them. So we end up playing them in the Super Bowl. Nobody's giving us a chance. Everybody thinks that they're going to just, you know, it's going to be a lapper, a lapper, and they're going to just walk right through us like we're not even, not even there. And the next thing you know, boom, the helmet catch happens. The helmet catch happens, and it's a wrap, man. We just, we win the Super Bowl. Um, you know, I got my Super Bowl ring. I got my key to the city. We have the big parade. I mean, it's a whole big deal, man. It was unbelievable. It, that's, you know, the climax of my career. Like, you know, I've been through so much in my career from college, even all the way to the pros, and then to be blessed to get to a point where I can actually be a part of that big ceremony and the whole deal. It was like, you know, it really capped it off. Do you still watch a lot of football, watch a lot of, lot of uh, NFL, I mean, college, even South Carolina, but I mean, as a guy that played in the NFL, do you still watch a lot of it or no? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I still watch it. I watch a lot of it. I, you know, um, I like to watch it because I'm, I'm like, um, I'm creating a, a, a QB academy, right? So I'm creating mm-hmm. a quarterback academy. And uh, I like to, uh, I like to observe the game so I can continue to sharpen my knowledge to make sure that, you know, I can continue to, to teach the kids that I'm training um, because you know, in order to be successful at this game, you have to have three A's, right? So I call it the, the, uh, the triple A, right? Uh, you have to have awareness, right? You have to have anticipation, and you have to have accuracy, right? And so I'm always watching. I'm always studying. I'm always trying to learn different techniques, different things that I'm seeing people doing. I watch the best. Uh, I love. I really love watching Drew Brees right now because I think Drew Brees is doing so much with the least. You know what I mean? As far as his right. eyes and, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think he's doing so much, you know, so I love watching, uh, I love studying it and uh, I love taking what I can get from them and then passing it on to the next generation. For sure. So, you know, obviously your career ends, you actually suffered a back injury in 2008, which it's funny. I was looking again, your career. I mean, you overcame adversity. There's no doubt because all the injuries, the knee injury in college, you had to have a, you had a torn labrum in Baltimore that you had to get fixed. And then, the back injury obviously finally kind of, I guess, the last blow, if you will, sort of knocks you out and you decide to announce your retirement. Um, after that long career, I'm sure it was a little bit easier after you win the Super Bowl in 2007 to make the decision to step away. But when you did announce your retirement, you know, when you look back on it, uh, you know, how, how hard was it, I guess, to step away from the game of football? Uh, you know what, man? It, it, it was tough. And on one end, and then it, it was like uh, a relief on the other, mm-hmm. right? Um, because of everything I had been through, you know what I mean? I had seen the, the ugliness of the profession uh, all the way from college all the way to the pros. And so, um, you know, 
I, I miss the camaraderie. I miss being with the guys. I miss being in the locker room. I miss, um, you know, those game checks. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it was a, um, it was a relief at, at the same time because it was like, you know, I actually had made it to the other side. You know what I mean? There was a lot of, uh, uh, trials and tribulations. I had to climb a lot of mountains. Um, but I made it. You know what I mean? Uh, with all odds against me, I was able to make it. And, uh, so, so I was, I was happy with what I had done and, uh, I was ready to move on to the next phase. So random question for you, Anthony, what did we just because we just had him on the show, were you ever able to, uh, to face John Abraham in, in the NFL, your, your former teammate or yes. yeah. Did he yes. ever, did he ever get you or were you able to stay, uh, stay on your feet? Uh, he, he almost got me once, but they blew the whistle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he almost got me for a, a strip fumble, too. We were playing against the Jets. I was playing for the Ravens. And um, I uh, I came off the edge. It was, I think it was a bootleg or something. And um, he wrapped me up. They blew the whistle. And then he tried to strip the ball. When he tried <laughs> to strip the ball, then one of the other guys picked it up. But the whistle was blown dead. But, yeah, he almost got me. You know, he was always a problem. He was a problem in college. <laughs> he was. He was a problem in college. That's why, listen, that's why I kind of took him under my wing because I knew he was good. I knew he was legit good. Like, mm. like he, I knew he was NFL good. Mm. And so I needed, you know, the old saying goes like, you know, iron sharpens iron, you know what I mean? And big, big dogs run with big dogs. And so I knew he was a big dog. I knew he was a player, you know what I mean? And so you want to, as a player, when you see another player like that, you try to uh, attach to them, you know what I mean? Because those are the people that when the going gets tough, you look to. So anytime I was, you know, he's only one man, right? So, but anytime I needed to play, I would look to John, like, John, I need for you to go out and I need for you to give me a strip, a strip sack, you know? Um, I need for you to make a big play. You know, I need for you to do something. And he'd be like, okay, 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 okay. And he would go out and do the best he could. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They would probably double, double them and cutting them and everything else. But, you know, I was, you know, I always thought, I knew he was a, a player. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, he went on to the NFL and had a great career and a long career. And he really is a, is a Hall of Famer, really. So, um, you know, I, no, I, was, I was thankful to play with somebody like that. Who would you say is the best wide receiver you ever got to throw the ball to? Oh, man. Wow. Hmm. I guess you would have to put – are you talking about in, in the pros? Or in, in, in NFL, the, yeah. We'll say, we'll say NFL. Oh, NFL? Oh, oh, oh NFL? Oh. Probably uh, – okay, so I, I go with wide receivers. The best – the best – the best wide receiver I had to throw to part of the, <laughs> it'll probably be Derek Mason. Mm. Derek Mason. Derek Mason was he, he was a he was a horse. Derek Mason was a horse. People don't really realize it though. But if I had to pick a guy, I would take Derek. Um, Marcus, Marcus Robinson. Um, um, the best core would have probably been in Cincinnati when I had, when I was out there with uh, Hoosh and, and Chad. 
Um, they were probably the best core receivers. Um, the toughest receiver will probably be Hans Ward. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're different categories, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, but but the per, the one that could probably do it all was probably Derek Mason. You know, he he he, he was he was the guy that he was tough. He was gritty. He can he 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 would make a play out of no play. He he just he just had it. And I didn't really understand it, right? When we signed him, I remember when um, he was in Tennessee, and Steve McNair used to talk about him all the time. Steve McNair used to talk about him all the time, and I just could never understood, never understand why he would always talk about Derek Mason. I'm like, yo, Derek Mason, because Derek was like five, maybe five nine, you know, at five ten at, at the best. Why does he always talk about Derek Mason? Like, how's he the that guy? Until I played with him in Baltimore. And he was he's probably the most underrated receiver that I've ever seen. He he, he just he just had it. He just had it. Um and then you got Todd Heap, but he's a tight end, right? Todd Heap was mm-hmm. probably the best tight end I ever threw to. But he was a tight end, so I didn't want to see him. He, you know, he didn't play that position. But you know, those guys are just named. You know, Marcus was a big play guy. Mm-hmm. You know, Marcus you gotta know how to use Marcus. Then it, it was just, it, it, you know, we was in Baltimore. Marcus, what people didn't realize about Marcus was Marcus is about six four, six five. And Marcus is a track guy that could jump and could catch, right? And so those kind of guys are the ones that you want to send on maybe three or four routes the whole game. A, a go route, a go route is his primary route, and then you run everything else off of that. Whether it be a comeback, whether it be a dig route, whether it be a hitch, or be a quick out, everything else is played off of his go route because he's so big and he's so fast. That when we got into Baltimore, and anytime I saw, that's when we started scoring so many points, mm-hmm. is because we were running like prior to me getting in, we had Jamal back there running the ball a lot, and so we was running the ball, running the ball. So what people started doing before I got in was they were packing the box, but when I got in, and they were packing the box. I knew about Marcus. I don't, I don't think Carol really knew about Marcus, but I did. So when they started packing the box, I was like, oh, yeah, please, please pack the box. And I was just throwing up go routes. I was throwing go routes, skinny posts, deep digs, comebacks all day against that man coverage. And was, we were killing them. We were putting up four. And you look at it, if you look at it, we put up 40 points three or four times when I played in Baltimore that year for sure so and we put up four go ahead no I, go ahead i was just going to ask you a different question no i was going to say i, I was going to say we put up 44 against uh seattle then i think we put up 44 against um uh san fran mm-hmm. and then we put up 30 or 40 against one of the other teams for sure. So I just wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier, obviously with the mural and Coach Muschamp texting. You talking about the current state of South Carolina football. Obviously, I mean, since you were there, um, South Carolina football obviously has achieved a lot under you know Lou Holtz, Steve Spurrier, and now Will Muschamp. Um, I just wanted to get your opinion on you know sort of the I guess bringing the former players back on campus, getting them involved, getting them recognized, and other they're trying to retire more numbers and. You know, and I think it's good. They're getting these guys back on campus like yourself, like a John Abraham, like former guys that played at South Carolina. But when you look at the program under Will Muschamp, what are your opinions on the state of Gamecock football right now? And I guess not only what he's doing on the field with the current team, but how he's keeping the uh, the alumni involved as well. 
I love it, man. I love everything he's doing. It's crazy because I was, uh, I think, on Facebook, there's a um, a page called Gamecock Forever or something like that, and somebody said something about they wanted Steve Spurrier back. And I just, you're right. I just, um, I love everything that Muschamp is doing, man. Um, um, he's he's a great recruiter. He's recruiting well. Um, he's keeping the, the, the former players involved. Um, He's personal. Uh, he's personable. He's a personable coach. Um, like I said, he he actually sent me a text of the mural before um, you know, I, before I saw it on Facebook or before anyone else told me about it. He just sent me a picture of the mural and just was like, man, this is like an appreciation for everything you've done for the university. I mean, it made me feel so good um, that he did that. And um, you know, I just think I think the I think the organization is moving, or the or the, or the program is moving in the right direction. And I, I think, you know, obviously, you know, you, we're playing in one of the the toughest uh, conferences in the, in the in the country, but you know, our facilities are starting to match um, that type of competition. You know, I mean, because when you start talking about Georgia, Alabama, Auburn, those guys got got top notch facilities, Clemson. They got top-notch facilities. And so now our facilities are starting to match that, which is going to bring in better recruits, which is going to make us uh, or give us a chance to be able to compete uh, with the upper echelon guys. So as long as we stay on the path that we are on now, I think we'll be fine. Obviously, he knows his football. Um, you know, he, he knows what he's doing uh, with the game. And uh, we just got to keep playing. Just got to keep playing. Just got to keep getting – uh, good recruits and uh, and 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 see where we, you know see where we end up. I know you said you were a guy you love to play kind of like in the spread, the old school Florida State offense. It, how much do you would you have loved to play in the spread style, kind of the no huddle, hurry up type stuff they play in today? Uh, I I think I would have loved it. Man. I think I think I think I would. Uh, you know, it's one mm-hmm. of those things where it's like. Again, it goes back to the coaching. You know, not knowing what I know now, you know, what I mean, does the coach? Uh, is the coach really going to give me the best opportunity to be successful at the next level? Is he going to teach me uh, the things that I need to know in order to play at the next level? And and really, and honestly, and just just giving you a quick snippet of some of the things that it requires to play at the next level: um, understanding protections, understanding coverages. Um, understanding how to redirect protections, understanding how to throw hots, understanding how to throw sights. You know, that's going to give you your best. Understanding how to study, that's going to give the quarterback the best chance to be successful at the next level. You know, if you if that kid can leave your program being able to do those things, then he's going to put himself in the best position to be successful. So for me, or even my child, or, or anybody that I'm training, it's not so much, it's not so much about you throwing the ball uh, 40 times a game. It's, I think it has more to do with, okay, what are you being taught? Are, are you, uh, is he allowing you to be a quarterback? If you're in a system where the guy is allowing you to be a quarterback, he's allowing you to be able to understand, to, 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 to check plays and to, to look at fronts and to identify fronts and to uh, uh, throw height, I mean, throw, throw hots and throw sights, then I'd be like, you know what? Yeah, that's, that's a school I want to play at. Do you feel like quarterbacks aren't being – because you're obviously a quarterback guru, quarterback guy, obviously a former NFL guy, but do you feel like quarterbacks aren't being developed quite as good as they used to be? Because I know that's a huge gripe people talk about is, 
you know, quarterbacks in college, a lot of it is sometimes people are just saying, hey, put the best bath, put the best athlete back there and let him kind of work. And really, again, the spread off, and I don't want to say it's gimmicky, but it's it's very uh, – it's like basketball on grass. I've heard a lot of people call it. But, I mean, do, do, you, do you have any issue with the way quarterbacks are being developed at the college level or no? Um, uh, yes, yes, some of them. Yes, yes. I mean, you got to – you know, I don't want – you know, when you start talking about these gimmicky offenses, uh, you know, where the guys, you know, aren't really reading coverages and, you know, you got them out here just uh, doing a lot of read option stuff where you're not really giving them a chance to, to know what they're doing. Um. You know, for me, it becomes a, a – I, I begin to wonder, like, are you are you just trying – are you being selfish? Do you just want to win for yourself? You're not really giving these, chances, these guys a chance to be successful at the next level? Or, you know, are you really trying to improve these kids? You know, for me, you know, even with my quarterback academy, when a guy leaves my academy, I want him to – I want to be able to say – that I can vouch for that kid, that that kid is ready to play ball, that that kid can walk up to your line of scrimmage, look at preach that read, post that read, and know where to go with that ball. No matter what you do, he knows what to do. And because I know if he can do that in college, he can do it in the pros, mm-hmm. right? Now, you know, creating, being accurate and all that stuff, that's, you know, we'll work on that, whatever, but I'm just talking about the mental part of the game. Can you walk up to the line of scrimmage, know that he has a six-man protection, know that you're bringing the Mike and the Sam, I know if my, both Mike and Sam come, I have a protection problem. Does he know that? Does he know that if I have a six-man protection and you bring real free safety, that I have a protection problem? Does he know that he can redirect the mic call and pick that blitz up? Does he know that? Does he know what three cloud is and does he know how to beat three cloud? Does he know what cover two is? Does he know how to beat cover two? All these are questions that quarterback has a, has a no answer have answers to on every single play on every single play that's one of the things that coach Reeves taught me was that you got to be able to take cover two and draw it up against every single play in the playbook and then write your one two and your three where am i gonna go oh write this blitz draw this blitz up bring up bring bring the mike sam blitz bring the sam strong safety blitz and then i want you to write do it against every single play and have an answer for that blitz Versus every single play, all the kids being taught that, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of the reasons why I want to do this academy because they're definitely not being taught this. They're not being taught anything close to this, obviously, in high school or in middle school or any level. These kids can't tell you anything because the coaches are just telling them what to do: throw the ball here, throw the ball there, look here, look there. But they don't really have an answer. They have a rhyme or reason why they're looking there. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that it's quarters. And what they, they don't understand it is quarters coverage and what the DB's responsibility and the linebacker's responsibility in quarters coverage is. And no why doubt. that play beats it. Go ahead. Now I was saying, and why this play beats that coverage. Mm-hmm. No, so it's detailed. Yeah, I feel like I, just learned, very, very I think I just learned more about the quarterback position than I've ever known in my entire life. So it, it's definitely not as simple <laughs> as drop back and throw the football. <laughs> no, right, <laughs> right. But if you don't know, you don't know. It's like one of those right. things. Like if your kid is going to the school, and my kid is going to the school, and I don't know this stuff, I don't know what to ask the coach. So it makes it like, even more funny than when you've got fans on social media or parents in the stands or whoever in the stands, like critiquing the 
the uh, you know critiquing a player on the field when you truly just don't have any clue what's going on. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's one of the frustrating things when he talks about, you know, when you, you know, for myself, you know, we were talking about, do I watch football? Like, do I go to games and stuff? That's one of the frustrating things about going to games or sitting in the crowd with, 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 you know, with fans or getting on social media and hearing people rant on Facebook about this play or talking about that play. I don't think Bentley is good. I don't think that guy, Helsinki or Helsinki is good or whatever. They don't think that guy is. And like, it, that kills me because I'm like, ah. Uh, like, you guys aren't in those meeting rooms. You don't have – just like when Clemson made the move from uh, the quarterback that they had, right? Yeah, Bryant uh, to Lawrence. Kelly Bryant to Trevor Lawrence. Right. So, when they went from Bryant to Lawrence, you know, everybody was kind of killing. Like, why are you doing this kid? Went to the national championship last year, blah, blah, blah. Because you guys aren't sitting in the meeting rooms, man. You guys aren't watching practice every day. Mm. You guys do not – you guys do not know what these coaches know. <laughs> these coaches are watching film every single day. They're seeing this every single day. I think they know what they're doing, brother. Mm. You got to trust them. But everybody everybody wants instant gratification. So, No doubt. Well, hey, since you're a quarterback, you're the quarterback guru, I'll ask you about Jake Bentley, obviously a guy that, uh, you know, you're right, has been highly, highly criticized for his inconsistent play. I think there was a stat I was reading. He's thrown – only one guy has thrown more interceptions than him over the last two seasons. But he's played a lot of good football for South Carolina. I mean, threw for over 500 yards against Clemson last year and has, you know, really led South Carolina to some big wins. And I've talked before, I think South Carolina would be in a very, very sore spot without him the past couple of years. But, anyways, when you look at Jake Bentley's game, he's coming into his senior year, and he's a guy that obviously has aspirations to play at the next level. When you look at his game, what do you like? What do you not like? What do you think he needs to work on before he tries to take that next step? No, uh, I, mean, I, I like it. I think he has a strong arm. Um, uh, he can be a little inconsistent at times as far as his accuracy is concerned uh, uh, at times. He throws the ball a little high sometimes. Um, but um, I think he's an intelligent kid. Um, you know, I just want to – I mean, I personally think I, I like the kid. You know, I, I've been saying this. I, I said this when I first uh, was watching him play two years ago. Mm. That you know, I liked him. You know, I, I thought he had an opportunity to be successful. Again, um, you know, he, he's being given chances to be successful. He's, um, um, you know, he's he's. Um, they're gonna. It's his job to lose. Um, and so he's gonna have an opportunity to go out there this year. I know, you know, a lot of fans they're already calling for Helensky. Um, to to get in and mm-hmm. you know like you know but that, that's a, that's fans you know the fans they always want to back up right they always want to back most up most popular guy on campus and most popular guy on campus is a backup guy <laughs> until he starts playing it's the next guy so <laughs> right so I, I I'm very um I'm optimistic about him I, I think he can do it and a lot of people don't say I think he can do it I think he has the talent the skill he's gonna be a senior this year so he's gonna he's gonna have the confidence. You know, he's been doing this now for, 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 for what, three years? This will be his third year or fourth yeah. year starting? Yeah, this will be his third uh, year. Well, so he, uh, it'll be technically his fourth year because he came in late in the season in 2016. So he, he this will be his fourth year actually playing. All right, so this will be his fourth year playing. So he's to be confident. Um, you know, it's no holds bar. He's trying to get to the NFL. You know, this is it. Like, mm-hmm. I put it to you like this, you know, if, if it put in the first. You know, he has a he should have a good roster, right? I haven't really looked yeah, at the yeah, roster. Yeah, pretty pretty solid. I mean, he lost Debo, but they they're going to have a solid roster for sure. Good. So if he has a solid roster, so that means some you know, it should receivers. be you no know, 
Some good wide receivers. You know, then he should be the guy. He should be the X factor that can take them over. Hmm. You know, if, if if you have a solid core and you and you really are good, then you can be that X factor to win at least two two games that you should win. Yep. If you're that, and if you if you're NFL, if you're good enough for the NFL, you should win two games that you possibly shouldn't win. If you know, if you're playing with a solid guys. Yeah. Now, if you guys aren't that good, that's totally different. But if you got solid guys, defensively and offensively, you should be okay. You should be able to win two games. You should win. Yeah, and I, I agree with you 100%. I, it, it's going to be very interesting to watch for sure. Before I let you go, Anthony, I know I've kept you for a while, but before I let you go, um, I'm just curious to get – if you had to look back on your time at South Carolina, what would you say was your favorite memory as a Gamecock, whether it be on the field, off the field, in five points, <laughs> whatever. What would you say is your favorite yeah, memory? Yeah. Oh, man. Just uh, really, man, just my karate with my teammates. You know what I mean? Just, just being with my teammates. You know, one, one thing about it, no matter how my career went there, um, I built a bond. I built a bond with a group of guys that, you know, we, we bled together. We, you know, we, we lost together. We won together. Um, uh, you know, we cried together. We suffered together. Everything together. So, you know, uh, the bond that I built with them was probably the best thing that ever happened to me there. No doubt. Well, hey, man, I really do appreciate you taking the time, Anthony. It was a pleasure to have you on again. I feel like I learned more about football in this interview than I ever have in any other interview. And as I'm, I'm not sure if you knew, it was our 100th podcast, 100th episode. So I appreciate you uh, you being the guest and taking the time to talk to us, man. Let's uh, let's definitely do it again sometime here in Columbia at a South Carolina game. We'd love to meet up. But, you know, then that, let's, uh, let's definitely link and talk some ball sometime, man. Yes, sir, man. That sounds great to me, brother. All right, perfect. So for Anthony Wright, I'm Chris Phillips. We appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on another episode of the Spurs Up Show.